Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about the Republicans in the Senate. We will need 20 of them to vote to convict Trump if he's going to be removed from office. Is that totally impossible? Our Ellie Mistal says maybe not. He'll explain later in this hour. Also, Haiti is at the brink of collapse. We'll have a report from Amy Willens. But first, the dilemma of the moderate Democrats. For that, we turn to Jeet here. He's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. Jeet, welcome back. Good to be here. Well, New York Magazine recently wrote a piece, the writer was Olivia Nutzi, saying that Joe Biden is running a, quote, zombie campaign. But, you know, whatever problems he faces, whatever mistakes he's made, he's still the front runner. He's still raising a lot of money. I wonder if you agree that he's running a zombie campaign. Well, I think the zombie uh, analogy holds in a couple of ways. I mean, the thing with zombies is that they're very hard to kill, right? (laughs) Uh, So, I mean, Joe Biden, he's kind of like lumbering along, uh, kind of brain dead, kind of inarticulate, very zombie-like, but he's still uh, going forward. And it is true that um, in the national polls especially, he's leading. I think things look a little bit differently when you look at the um, early states where uh, I think uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire – And Nevada, he's either trailing or he has a very small lead. And, you know, it seems doubtful that Biden has a way to improve his poll numbers. So so let us imagine for a minute that we are the kind of Democrats that are usually called moderates. Do we have a plan B? Do we have an alternative to Biden? Well, I think I think in some ways that they the problem is that they have too many alternatives. <laughs> There's like uh, if you look at like all the candidates that are running in that sort of centrist stream, uh, you know you have Pete Buttigieg and Klobuchar and Delaney. There's uh, and Booker and Harris. And this is almost like a plethora of candidates to choose from. And that might be one reason why nobody has sort of taken the lead. Now it's hard for them to get the name recognition you need. I think Pete Buttigieg maybe is kind of standing out a little bit. He's like doing a little bit better in the polls, by which I mean he's like at 7% as against 2%. But also the fundraising. He's like the only candidate whose fundraising is equal to uh, Warren and Sanders and is far above Biden. So it seems like if you're going to get anyone, it's going to be Pete Buttigieg. But I think he has as many problems as Joe Biden, if not more. So let's talk about Mayor Pete. He is in in fourth place. He has raised and is raising a lot of money. 
He's also famously gay. Would the Biden supporters, if Joe fails, support a gay candidate? What do we know about this? Yeah, I, 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 we, well, first of all, his support is so low, it's kind of hard to know who would support him hypothetically. And it's also partially a function of name recognition. There was an argument in the New York Times, an article over the weekend saying that he would have trouble in South Carolina because uh, there's a lot of African-American voters there. There's a preponderance there. And uh, the article speculated that uh, African-American voters would be reluctant to support a gay candidate. They cited a focus group that the Buttigieg campaign itself did. I'm just a little bit skeptical that that's the the dynamic that's going on there, because first of all, one would think that um, white South Carolinians, who are also more socially conservative than the national norm, would have the same problems. But also, if you actually look at Buttigieg's supporters, what supporters he has, they tend to skew like towards people who make more than $100,000 and who are like, you know, college education or more. And so the Biden base is not that. The Biden base is sort of like it's multiracial, but it also um, has a significant working class component and a significant non-college educated uh, component. So it's not quite clear that Buttigieg is the candidate for those people. Okay, Biden's bedrock base of support, especially in South Carolina, which is one of the earlier primaries, Biden's bedrock is African-American voters. Of course, there are African-Americans in the race who would love to replace Biden in the moderate slot. There's Cory Booker, there's Kamala Harris. Do you think they could replace Joe Biden in the hearts and minds of African-Americans? Well, I think that the uh, 28 race maybe gives an indication of what they would need to do, uh, which is that like Barack Obama was actually polling very poorly among African-American voters until he won in uh, Iowa. And that kind of showed them that, you know, this is a guy who could win. These are voters that tend to be very pragmatic and are very interested in backing someone who can win in the White House. So if they did very well in Iowa, I think that they would have a, a shot. And I think that's the sort of path that's open to them. Harris had a boomlet after the first debate, but she's kind of sunk since then. And I think, uh, especially with younger uh, voter, African-American voters who are very interested in the sort of, you know, you know post-Ferguson, Black Lives Matter politics, uh, Harris has a lot of weaknesses because of her record as a prosecutor. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's hard to see either of them unless they can somehow pull the rabbit out of the hat in Iowa and New Hampshire. Biden has has problems. It's hard to see which of the other moderates currently in the race could replace him. Uh, your piece at thenation.com has, has a devastating quote that Mayor Pete is, quote, a college town mayor with fewer black supporters than Donald Trump, close quote. So let's say Biden doesn't make it. Mayor Pete can't substitute him. Cory Booker and Kamala Harris don't look promising. There is, of course, the nightmare scenario, stronger together with Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think that uh, there has been a lot of speculation about Hillary Clinton precisely because Biden is so weak. My sense is that this is really coming not from Clinton herself, but from people around her who are kind of her entourage and really have no existence apart from Hillary Clinton running for president. And uh, they, they would, uh, because I, to actually re-enter the race, she would need a kind of like, you know, funding infrastructure in place. And it's getting a little bit late in the day, even 
Clinton herself probably is aware that the you know the uh, Democrats are not going to be very hungry for uh, you know Trump versus Clinton rematch, given what happened last time. Of course, there's one other moderate in the race. How could I have forgotten, as a St. Paul native, Amy Klobuchar? She is pitching herself very clearly as the moderate who can carry not just Minnesota but Iowa, Wisconsin, and Michigan. What about Amy Klobuchar? I actually think, like, if it was a general election, I think Klobuchar is, in a lot of ways, the most plausible moderate. Like, uh, in her time in Minnesota, she has kind of shown sort of crossover appeal, and she polls very well. I just, like, we haven't seen, like, any evidence of traction in the race. And I think it's very telling. Like, you know, there's Biden who's running on sort of name recognition and being sort of uh, Obama by osmosis. You know, he, he was in the same room with Obama many times. And then, but you have all the other lesser ones and the lesser ones have been attacking Warren and Sanders for being too ambitious, but that attack has not given, getting, gotten them anywhere. So I really feel like unless we see like some sort of like miracle or some sort of really unexpected thing, you know, Klobuchar, like the rest, seems to be going nowhere fast. Well, we've run through virtually the entire list. There's only two left. Does the difficulties of all the people we've talked about mean that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders is our next president? I think that, I mean, if I were calling it today, I I think that uh, those are the ones that are most likely to have a shot. I mean, I feel like Warren maybe has a slight edge just because she's able to bring people on board that um, Bernie uh, alienates. Although, I mean, I, I don't want to rule out the zombie scenario which is that like a brainless, inarticulate, uh, you know, half-dead creature could defeat everybody. <laughs> this is going to be a Democrats 2020, dawn of the dead. <laughs> so we, we read that the big donors are pulling away from Joe Biden. The Wall Street Democrats who want Biden or Mayor Pete or maybe even Hillary, their problem is not that Elizabeth Warren cannot win. It's the opposite. They're afraid that she will win and tax the heck out of their wealth. She will lose the support of the Wall Street Democrats following out the scenario that she gets the nomination. How serious a problem is that? Is that a devastating, uh, uh, game-changing fact? No, I don't think so. I mean, like, I think that the um, uh, what Warren is doing and what um, sort of following in the footsteps of Bernie, but also interestingly following in oh, the footsteps of Obama 2008, is small donor revolution, like really getting a lot of the small donors. And in some ways, it's a gamble because, like, can the Democrats raise enough money from small donors in a national election in a way that nobody has really ever done before? But, I mean, the numbers that Warren and especially Sanders are racking up are really impressive and do indicate that there's a kind of body of the population out there that that would support uh, something like this. And what that would do is really render the sort of impact of Wall Street sort of obsolete. And that that would really change American politics. I mean, if you have, you know, one political party that isn't dependent on Wall Street, then, you know, you could actually do a lot of things that politicians have been afraid to do. In one final note, all of the things that we would like that candidate to do, whether it's Elizabeth Warren or Bernie, require that the Democrats at least win three Senate seats. If that doesn't happen, none of this is going to be possible no matter who's president. 
yeah, no, I think that, that that's right. Although I think that things are kind of looking up. I mean, if you actually like look at the recent polls in the kind of states that are up for grabs, Democrats are doing a bit better and Republicans are suffering a bit. So I don't think it's impossible to imagine, uh, you know, President Warren or President Sanders with a Democratic Senate. Jeet here. Read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Jeet. Thank you. It's been great to be here. It's time to talk about Republicans in the Senate. 20 will need to vote to convict Trump if he's going to be removed from office. Is that possible? For comment and analysis, we turn to Eli Mistal. He's executive editor of Above the Law as well as the legal editor of WNYC's More Perfect. And he's a contributing writer for The Nation. Eli, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. You need 67 votes in the Senate to convict and remove a president who's been charged by the House with high crimes and misdemeanors. And there are only 47 Democrats or independents. That means you need 20 Republicans to break ranks and vote for removal. Let's assume for the moment that we have Mitt Romney. That means we need 19 more. And everybody says that's an impossible number to reach. The first obstacle we need to consider is the Democratic leadership of the Senate. What's your assessment of Chuck Schumer's readiness for battle? Yeah, it's very low, right? I mean, you're saying let's assume we have Mitt Romney. I'm premising this on that we have Joe Manchin (laughs) and Kristen Sinema, and that's not a fait accompli, right? And I think that's the kind of stuff that starts to fall on Schumer's head. Like, Schumer has not shown himself as an effective leader for keeping his own people in line, to keeping for keeping his own Democrats on message. So when it comes to actually advocating for uh, you know to change the minds of the Republicans, Schumer hasn't done the kinds of things that one would want you know a strong minority leader to use. Right? He hasn't used the guerrilla tactics. He hasn't he hasn't done the stunts. He hasn't done the protests. He hasn't he's not out there constantly you know making the case and making the argument for the president's criminality. So I don't have a whole lot of faith in the, in the Democratic minority leader in the Senate, which to me means that, you know, the people are going to have to do this themselves. And you think that the people themselves may make a conviction in the Senate possible, that it's not hopeless. And your first piece of evidence here cited in the, at thenation.com is a conservative website called the Daily Caller. I don't know the Daily Caller. What is the Daily Caller? It's like, I don't know, Tucker Carlson dude bros living in their own echo chamber. Trust me, I only, I only read the Daily Caller when I want to understand the complete weakness of the conservative intellectual argument <laughs> or just make myself feel better because I understand science. Like, so so I, I, don't, I don't put the journalistic integrity of the Daily Caller um, at a particularly high level. However... They are super – it's a super conservative website, and the Daily Caller, Caller claims to have polled all 53 Republican senators and found that only seven of them ruled out impeachment outright. And even for those seven, I think three or four of them were mainly making process arguments, like we have – there's been no due process or whatever um, they're talking about. And those process arguments will fail by the time we get to the Senate – when Trump will have the opportunity to be put on trial and cross-examine witnesses and bring his own witnesses if he wants to put Giuliani on the stand and see how that goes for him. 
So in your piece in The Nation, you say the place to start in looking for those 20 Republican votes is with the Republicans up for re-election. There's 23 of them. Some of them, of course, are never going to vote to remove Trump. The names Lindsey Graham and Moscow Mitch come to mind. But, but there are others. Aren't there some others? Yeah, I mean, like, bottom line, 23 Republicans have to vote on whether or not to convict a president who, by the time we get through the Senate trial, will have been, it it will be publicly obvious that he abused his power in an attempt to extort Ukraine, right? They're going to have to vote on whether or not they think that's wrong, and then in November face their voters in their state. And so while we think that Again, conventional wisdom says, well, they'll never break because they're, they're worried about their own jobs. Maybe they'll be worried about their own jobs. Of the 23 Republican senators running, um, Trump's approval rating is underwater or near or just break even in 10 of those states, which account for 11 senators because Georgia has to run both of their senators this time. So if you can start to break through there with the, in the, with, with the senators in the states where Trump's numbers are already underwater, to say nothing of the fact that his numbers in all likelihood will get worse as much as more of this information comes out publicly. Like, that's how you start to break the dam. These people, they're politicians. So their primary concern is keeping their job. And if they start to feel like hanging on to Trump is not a life raft, but instead a weight around their ankles, they might well ditch him. And... We also have to remember we're not talking about a vote this week. We're talking about a vote in a couple of months. Public hearings, public trials. Again, the Senate process should be an actual trial-like setting, right? That could be a problem for people who have to run in Colorado or Florida or Georgia or North Carolina or Iowa um, this this uh, in 2020, and by naming those states, I just told you that you know you could see movement from Cory Gardner or Susan Collins or Joni Ernst, right? Like there are a lot of Republicans that could potentially start to cut bait with Donald Trump after this trial. What's what do you think is a realistic target number? How how many of the 23 Republicans facing re-election might vote to remove Trump from office? I mean, again, it's, I'm trying to be hopeful and yeah. optimistic that yes. there is a core of decency in the Republican Party. Um, and many people have gone broke uh, believing that that <laughs> existed, right? But, you know, if, of the 23, if we got 10, if we got 10 of those 23 people running, Republicans running for re-election to break, like, that would be significant, and that would put us kind of well on the way to actually impeaching him. So let's stick with this core of decency idea for a minute. Of those who are not running for re-election, how many might have this core of decency? At least 10 of them run around all the time pretending like they have a conscience. Mitt Romney, Mike Lee, Lisa Murkowski, Ben Sass, these people, Rand Paul, these people act like they got into politics, they got into the Senate for some higher constitutional 
purpose than mere partisan politics. Now, I tend to think that they're hypocrites, right? I, I look at their votes on Kavanaugh. I look at their votes on their refusal to stand up for Merrick Garland, and I, and I call hypocrisy on their actions most of the time. But if they want to pretend like they have a conscience, then the clear evidence that we already know but will be made even more clear and more public that Trump extorted the Ukraine should arguably move a constitutionalist like Rand Paul or Ted Cruz. I mean, this, if they vote for acquittal, then what they're essentially saying is that the impeachment clause in the Article One of the Constitution just no longer apply. And they might be willing to save, say that to save their own hide, but when you talk about these people who don't even have to run for re-election, what hide is Ben Sass saving, right? Like, what, what does Mike Lee gain at this point from continuing to support a corrupt and likely criminal president, it's, it's, you, you can lose a lot of money betting on Republicans to do the right thing. But if you've already got maybe like five, six, seven Democrat, uh, Republicans running for re-election who are against impeachment, and you've already got Mitt Romney, and you've already got Lisa Murkowski, then the pressure on a Ben Sass or a Mike Leach or even a Ted Cruz starts to look different I'm hoping. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping. That's a, a great way of putting it. We still need a few more votes after the ones who are up for re-election, after the ones who might have a conscience. Is there any place else to find a couple more votes among Senate Republicans? And this is where I say, like, it takes the people. Like, you have to put real activism, grassroots pressure on these people to make it very clear to them that if they don't you know, vote for conviction, there will be political consequences to pay, if not now, then somewhere down the line. So I look at somebody like Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania. Did you guys know there's a Republican senator from Pennsylvania? He's like the only Republican senator <laughs> left, like north of the Mason-Dixon line, right? Like, I, I think that it will be difficult for a guy like Pat Toomey to vote to acquit President Trump if the people of Pennsylvania are putting enough pressure on him, telling them that they will remember his vote when he's up for re-election. I think Ron Johnson, who actually seems to be somewhat implicated in, in some of this stuff, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, simply because like he is you know, also an international kind of Ukrainian person, so he might have had some dealings uh, around this. I mean, Ron Johnson knows that what Trump did is wrong, whether or not he's willing, he's obviously not willing to say that now. But, you know, Wisconsin is not a safe state for a Republican. Um, could you get Ron Johnson? Could you get Rick Scott and Marco Rubio? I mean, these, Florida is notoriously, you know, evenly split, evenly matched, whatever. Trump's underwater in Florida. Like, the, like is, is Rick Scott or Marco Rubio willing to stake their political futures on defending the Trump presidency? Because I'll tell you this, John, and I've told this to a lot of people, a vote for, for the acquittal of Donald Trump is going to look worse over time, especially if Trump actually gets acquitted, right? Like we have seen with the Ukraine thing that this, this Ukrainian scandal is a direct result of Donald Trump feeling emboldened after the Mueller report. If he survives impeachment, how emboldened will he feel then and what additional crimes will he commit after that? And so when you think about voting to acquit 
you know, the president, it's a lot like being on a parole board. You want to be merciful, you want to be whatever, but you let the, you let the wrong guy off of parole, they, go, they get released and they go out and commit more crimes, that's kind of on your head. And I think that that will be on the head of a Rick Scott or a Marco Rubio or some of these people in you know, very contentious states if they acquit Trump and then he goes on and commits even more crimes. Your analysis at TheNation.com concludes on what I think is an utterly brilliant point. You say instead of trying to find the 20 Republicans whose votes are needed to convict, let's look at it the other way and try to count to the 34 Republicans needed to acquit the president. Are there 34 solid votes to acquit? Will there be in a few months after the hearings and the trial have been on TV? I, I reframed it that way just because the assumption, the, again, the mainstream, the mainstream conventional assumption is that Republicans start on acquittal and have to be brought over. But what if Besides the seven people that the Daily Caller found out, Republicans start honestly not knowing, right? Like honest, be, being somewhat open either way. If you start from that premise and then try to count to 34 Republicans who have to proactively go out there and take a vote saying that this president's actions are legal and fine and constitutional. I don't know a lot about Mike Crapo in Idaho, but like you're a Republican for Idaho, fine. You're probably, <laughs> you know, you're probably not gettable, okay. right? But you, but when you count one by one by one, getting all the way to 34, I'm just saying it's not a fait accompli, and that's really the point of my article. That's what I want liberals and people who care about the rule of law to understand. This fight is not over in the Senate as long as we, the people, go fight for it. Eli Mistal, he did the numbers on Republican votes in the Senate. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Eli. This was great. Thank you, John, so much. The New York Times reported on page one last week, quote, There is no hope. Crisis pushes Haiti to brink of collapse. The subhead said, Haitians say the violence and economic stagnation stemming from a clash between the president and the opposition are worse than anything they have ever experienced. For comment and analysis, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, best known for her work on Haiti. She's written about Haiti for The New York Times, The Washington Post, and CNN. Her books on Haiti include The Rainy Season and the award-winning Farewell Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Is the current crisis worse than anything that's happened there? Well, the earthquake was really bad, let's put it that way. That was 2010. But yes, in the sort of long aftermath of that earthquake, things have tended to fall apart a little more. There was a lot of uh, relief and reconstruction going on. There was a lot of money coming into Haiti, but not being apportioned properly by the uh, powers that be and by the outside friends of Haiti. And then uh, government was elected um, in a U.S. sort of sponsored election uh, with a very, very low turnout because uh, Haitians don't have that much confidence in their elections anymore. And he won fairly substantively. And his name is Jovenel Moise. 
He's a youngish guy who really has no experience in politics, but is has been tapped to be president by the earlier president, Michel Martelly, who had to leave power constitutionally and who was also put into power with a U.S. imprimatur and OAS imprimatur. And now Jovenel doesn't know how to run a government. The opposition can't stand him. He's seemingly quite corrupt, but hey, <laughs> join the club, Jovenel Moïse. But the forces of order are not keeping order. And also, when you have almost an entire population involved in the unrest, it's hard to keep the order without shooting people. And they are trying but not succeeding uh, to not shoot people. I think about 20 people have now been killed in the protests, which are nationwide. So uh, big picture, historical perspective, you write in The Nation, Haiti has always been a leader in seismic shifts in how the world functions. Haiti, for example, I mean, this is the big thing in Haitian history, of course. It was a, a slave colony of the French, sugar producing. And then uh, beginning in 1791 and up through 1804, there was a revolution led by self proclaimed generals who rose out of the slave population of Haiti and who finally beat off Napoleon's forces and declared themselves a sovereign nation in 1804, which was very, very early. And that revolution essentially provided the spark over time for the end of slavery in the colonies and the end of slave economies throughout the world. Imagine you're, you know, not that far away. Louisiana is right there. And you're running a slave country when this revolution breaks out in 1804. So figure that if you can, my listeners, you know when the Civil War was and when slavery was ended in the United States. This is a good long time before, and it was very scary to um, the American government. And in fact, one little known fact about Haiti that I've been promoting for many years is because of the Haitian Revolution, Napoleon decided that the Americas were a waste of his time and manpower, and he pulled out of the uh, Louisiana territories and sold them to Thomas Jefferson in 1803. Uh, and the Louisiana Purchase made the United States a continental country. So thank you, Haiti, for making us a continental power. And next historic moment, 1929. Haiti was subjected to a U.S. Marine occupation from 1915 through 1929. Uh, the ostensible reason was too much violence in the streets of Haiti, but it's hard to imagine the United States could have cared less about too much violence. Citibank was operating in Haiti. There were American businesses in Haiti, and they needed to keep the, uh, the streets and the country somewhat stable for those businesses to keep... Uh, working with cheap Haitian labor and extracting Haitian produce and also to harbor Citibank's various business interests there. But in 1929, after many, many years of a sort of mountain-based revolt by Haitians, the marine occupation came to an end, finally. Um, so that was also a very early version of... Uh, freedom fighters working to uh, ensure that there was sovereignty in their own nation. And now, now you say the local elite has been running what you call a predatory system that's an example of pure capitalism. How does that work? So it's kind of a remnant of the slave 
state. And there's a sort of mixed light-skinned elite and a business class who've been running the country now ever since Duvalier left in 1986 and before, really ever since the revolution, maybe 20 years after the revolution, these people began to make their presence felt very strongly. They're landowners, and now they run businesses and import-export. Um, and it's about 11 really major families. Like whenever I run into a Haitian who I don't know, I always say, what's your last name? And then I know exactly how high up in this uh, structure they are. And they, too, profit from uh, the poverty of the country. They're very wealthy. They live up on the top of the hill that overlooks the capital. And uh, some have plantations in the countryside also. And they use very, very cheap Haitian labor because everyone's starving. And they basically keep the Haitian people at this poverty level so that you have to work very, very hard to earn very, very little. You can't save anything, and therefore you can never better your children's future. So they, they keep generation after generation in dire poverty through very low wages, very high costs for a Haitian. And that's why also there is an attempt to leave the country all the time, and people die on the high seas, and then President Trump won't let them in because they come from a not very attractive country to him. And uh, the, and the cycle keeps repeating itself with these same families. I mean, they have names from the revolutionary days running the show. You have an amazing line in your new piece at The Nation. Try to see Haiti as the United States today is run by Trump, but concentrated into a thimble. Well, so Haiti is tiny and the U.S. is gigantic. But what I'm talking about here is really income inequality of the direst kind. Also, I live in L.A., so we have a big homeless problem here, and it feels like it's a reflection of the income equality with a house just sold in Bel Air here in L.A. for um, $90 million, and yet I'm driving through streets where homeless people are living under overpasses, and sometimes I feel like I'm right back home in Haiti. And, uh, you know, the Haitians live in places that, if you saw them, you would think these were houses, sort of, but they're made of cardboard and tin and some wood slats, and they're slapped together by Haitians with their own hands, and then they turn into these sort of city shanty towns that look permanent but aren't really permanent, and they're really, essentially, they're homeless people, but they've built a little home. The current Haitian president, you say, is basically incompetent. Has there been any Haitian president in recent memory who was able to do the bare minimum of making sure that Haitians have food and shelter and basic education? No. But very few have tried. Some have tried. I would say that these are the ones who wanted to. Uh, and that's President Aristide, who was roundly run out of Haiti once and then reinstated by Clinton and then roundly run out of Haiti when uh, when George Bush followed Clinton into the White House. And then his sort of protege, René Préval, also tried in a limited way to do some good and succeeded to do a little bit of tiny good. And then he had to leave office. So, And since then, nothing. And this brings us to Trump. We know what Trump thinks of Haiti. Is there something we could call a Trump administration policy towards Haiti right now? No. My sense of the Trump administration is, first of all, the uh, State Department is somewhat depleted 
on all fronts. And then if you're not an important country, they don't think about you at all, which, you know, in the past I would say is a big relief. (laughs) But because of of U.S. and French and uh, Canadian and U.N. policy in Haiti, the Haitian government is really diminished and, and it really functions more as a corruption generating machine than it does as a government. What monies come into it are lost or squandered or stolen. And um, it's because it's become so irrelevant because the foreign powers come in, they distribute money, they don't like to go through the government because now that it's been turned into a corruption machine, essentially by their policies, they don't want to lose their money there. Not only that, but Haiti is a country of, it is said, 10,000 NGOs, non-governmental organizations, which are foreign organizations that function, you know, as clinics and schools, and they're not registered. Haiti's trying to register them, but it's very hard. So it's like a, a secret outside infiltration of Haitian administration, so that the Haitian government has felt for a long time like, well, they're doing what we do, so why should we do that? Let's just do corruption. Uh, I know you were in Haiti right after the earthquake in 2010. I remember you said at that point that people were hopeful. There was that Clinton-Bush initiative that was going to bring tens of millions to help rebuild Haiti. I guess that hope is gone now. I think it's gone. And, but it wasn't just the Clinton-Bush monies or or monies from France and Israel. I mean, everybody chipped in, you know. Even, even friends were giving money to the Red Cross, which failed abysmally. No, uh, people were hopeful because in that kind of emergency, they were working together. Like those big families that I was talking about were bringing their big Mercedes-Benzes downtown to pick up people to bring to the hospital. Mm. So there was a, a degree of of cooperative effort briefly until the foreign money started coming in, and then everybody was trying to get as much foreign money as they could get. So I think that in part led to a, a, a sundering of a collaborative feeling very quickly. And... What's happened to the small Haitian middle class that existed before the earthquake? Go to Brooklyn. <laughs> they're in Brooklyn. They're in uh, they're in New Jersey. They're in Montreal. They're in Paris. They're in many other places where French is spoken. And uh, it's been a brain drain ever since the Duvaliers. But every time there is terrible economic stress in Haiti, both the more educated Haitians try to leave, and also the poorest of Haitians try to leave, and uh, some succeed. And, you know, what really is sad to me is to see how well Haitians do who get into an economy that works. And if they could just figure out how to have an economy that works in Haiti, then Haiti would be a giant success because its human power is exceptional. Amy Willens's article, Haiti is in the Streets, appears at thenation.com. Thank you, Amy. Thanks a lot, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton, Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. 
Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.